Hello, everybody, and welcome to All My Movies. We are continuing Superman month. We've already gone through 1978's Superman the Movie and Superman 2, both the Richard Lester and Richard Donner cuts. We are going to take the next step in Superman's cinematic evolution today and look at Brian Singer's 2006 film, Superman Returns, which continued the story of the Donner universe, but with an entirely new cast. We're going to break down the movie itself, its very long road to the big screen, why there is never a sequel, and how it gave birth to the modern DC universe, a universe that is still expanding this week with the Snyder Cut being released. But before we get to all that, I want to thank you for watching and or listening to us. If you are watching us, we would love for you to go and be an audio subscriber over at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to get your audio podcasts. And if you're listening and you want to see the video of the show, you can find us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Before we begin, and this won't be the last time that this kind of subject is broached on the show, this is a movie that was made in 2006. Obviously, since then, there have been very disturbing stories and allegations that have come up around members of the cast and crew, particularly director Brian Singer and star Kevin Spacey, that are hard to put out of your mind. And these are not stories that I think should be excused or ignored in any way. This show is about focusing on the movie and the development process of that movie, and those people are part of this story. But I wanted to mention it up top just to acknowledge the fact that, as with so many other figures, not just in movies, but in history itself, in art and culture, sometimes it is tough to go back retroactively and enjoy the things that these people made in light of events and circumstances that come out later on down the road. I do believe that they are important. I do believe that they warrant mentioning. And even though they will not be part of the component, mostly of the storytelling of this movie, I think that they are important components of the storytelling of real life. We left off last week with Superman 2, the second film starring Christopher Reeve. He would go on to star in two more Superman films, Superman 3 and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which came out in 1987. And despite the enduring popularity of the character, by the fourth film, critics had turned on the franchise, Superman 4 was critically ravaged, and it was not a box office success. Superman's movie future was very much in doubt, even though, as late as 1990, producer Ilya Salkin said that he was planning to make a fifth Superman film in the franchise, potentially with Christopher Reeve returning to the role. That never materialized, and what followed was nearly 15 years of development on how to bring Superman back to the big screen. There was one project called Superman Reborn, which really bubbled up in 1993 following Superman's resurgence in popularity due to the death of Superman's storyline in the comic books and his return to life. That project morphed into the infamous Superman Lives with Tim Burton as the director and Nicolas Cage as the star. And if you haven't seen a documentary called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, which was done by the late, great John Schnepp along with Holly Payne, I highly recommend that. Movie. It is in my collection. Perhaps I'll be able to devote an entire episode to it. But if you want to kind of get the in between story uh, from the story that we've been telling here on the podcast between Superman 2 and Superman Returns, check out The Death of Superman Lives because it is a fascinating look at a movie that almost happened but didn't quite make it. Following the collapse of Superman Lives, and actually sometimes concurrently with it, there was also a potential Batman versus Superman movie that was written by Akiva Goldsman that never came to fruition. And then there was a project called Superman Flyby with a script by J.J. Abrams. There was a director attached to it for quite some time. That director was Brett Ratner, who, after a lot of creative disagreements, ended up dropping out of the film. The director, McGee, was then brought onto the film, but then he dropped out of the film, which put the whole project back into 
to turn around, and this is where Brian Singer enters the story. At this point, Brian Singer had already made the first two films in the X-Men franchise, X-Men and X2, X-Men United, and his producer on those films was Lauren Schuler Donner, who is the wife of Richard Donner, the director of Superman the movie, also directed a lot of Superman 2 along with the Richard Donner cut, which would come out right around the time Superman Returns did. And Singer actually got a chance to pitch Donner on his idea for a Superman movie based on the universe that Donner himself had created with the original films. Donner reportedly liked the idea, and eventually word got back around to the Warner Brothers executives that Singer had a pitch for a Superman movie right around the time that Superman Flyby had completely fallen apart. And John Peters, the famous or infamous producer, if you listen to Kevin Smith's stories about giant spiders, etc. during the development of Superman Lives, perhaps he falls a little bit more on the infamous side, realized that he had been thinking about this new Superman project wrong the whole time. For nine years, I saw the movie one particular way. We pushed and we pushed and we pushed. He, within a second, saw the real way it should be made, which was the reverse of what in our mind we had been going for. In mid-2004, Singer was hired by Warner Brothers to develop Superman Returns, which would not be a reboot as the studio had been pursuing, but a continuation of the Richard Donner storyline. To write the screenplay, Singer brought along Michael Doherty and Dan Harris, who had already collaborated on X2, X-Men United. But committing to Superman Returns meant that Singer had to drop out of the next film on his slate, which was the third X-Men film. And in one of those weird cosmic coincidences that can only happen in Hollywood, Singer's replacement on the third X-Men film, which would eventually be called X-Men The Last Stand, was Brett Ratner, the director who had dropped out of Superman Flyby, putting that project into turnaround, which eventually led Brian Singer to get hired to make Superman Returns. It's really just a snake eating its own tail. Superman Returns picks up several years after the events in Superman the movie and Superman 2, but Superman's actually left Earth and been gone for five years on a search for remnants of his doomed home planet of Krypton. When he returns back home to his adopted planet, he finds that Lois Lane has moved on, both personally and professionally, now engaged and with a young son, and he encounters Lex Luthor once again, whose new plan involves growing a new continent with stolen Kryptonian crystals that are laced with kryptonite in order to destroy destroy and submerge the United States, and destroy Superman in one fell swoop. Superman Returns had a massive budget. The, the production money alone is estimated to have been around $200 million, and this was by far the biggest budget that Brian Singer had ever had on any movie. And it's kind of hard to tell the story of the production of this film in a way that I would warrant as accurate and fair, considering that in the years since, as I mentioned, there have been stories and accounts coming out that Brian Singer was a bit of a difficult director to work with, to say the least. He had things in his life, which... Um you know, would come up and he wasn't always um, the the kindest person to everyone. He was always put on his best face for me, thankfully. So he was kind to you. That was not, that was not. But you saw it. You witnessed other things yes. that you were like, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. And even though the making of features, et cetera, that are on the discs and the supplemental features for Superman Returns are sanitized and put through the studio filter, you can definitely see hints of this difficult working environment bleeding through the edges here and there. I have a strange process of working. I change my mind a lot. And sometimes I get a little uh, weird, usually with my you know, co-workers. It's not directed at crew or cast or anything like that. It's, it's usually uh, us me frustrated because I can't figure out what I want. You know, if I'm barking at them or yelling or screaming at them, it has nothing to do with anybody or any person. It means no disrespect. No, that's what you always said. Liar. You said from here 
down. Uh, Brian Singer wasn't so much a director as the mayor of a small town. Superman Returns filmed mostly in Australia, and they took over an entire studio lot, eight sound stages along with location shoots, and it's easy to see how any director would get completely overwhelmed with this workload. Still, you can see how this was maybe not the best working environment for everybody, perhaps best exemplified by this, I think, really mean-spirited practical joke that was played on the production designer by Brian Singer and director of photography Newton Thomas Siegel. Here, they convince him that he has made a massive mistake, a fireable mistake, by by not building a key piece of one of the sets. This is not what we talked about. It's absolutely what everyone talked No, about. it is not what we talked about. I was under the impression no. that we, we talked about was, was like less than a hemisphere as a lighting as a, like a lighting element. We had a meeting about this with who? Okay. This is too cruel. I can't do it anymore. No, you don't can involve the director. That's that's he, how he'd heard fun. about it and wanted. He volunteered. No, but Strap is not scary. He is. <laughs> He's scary. <laughs> With pre-production underway, Singer and the producers turned to casting, and this was particularly tricky because not only did this new actor have to live up to the mantle of Superman, because the film was taking place in the same chronology as the Richard Donner films, he would have to literally be inhabiting the same character played by Christopher Reeve. And this became an even more complicated process when Reeve died in October of 2004, cementing his legacy as one of the most beloved superhero actors of all time. The answer to this casting conundrum came in the form of a 25-year-old actor from Iowa who had no film experience and some television experience, mostly in soap operas, named Brandon Routh. Brandon Routh had actually been tagged by a lot of talent directors and casting directors already because he bore such a close resemblance to Christopher Reeve as a potentially ideal candidate should any studio want to reboot the Superman franchise. Well, maybe you know, saying goodbye was hard because he, he, he wasn't sure whether he was going to be gone for a little while or, or, or forever. And, and maybe he had to go and, and he wanted to say goodbye, but he couldn't find the guts to do it. I feel like Brandon Routh is given kind of an unfair shake by a lot of people. And I think a lot of people consider him a failed Superman because he was only Superman in one movie, kind of like George Lazenby with the James Bond role. And I don't think that that label is fair in either case. Brandon Routh really had to walk a tightrope in this part. And they're usually between two conflicting things. He had to channel Christopher Reeve and try to make the part his own. He had to embody the hope of Superman in a movie that often took a very somber and mournful tone. Well, I hope this experience hasn't put any of you off flying. Statistically speaking, it's still the safest way to travel. I don't consider Brandon Routh a failed Superman. I think that the material failed Brandon Routh as Superman. But I don't feel the same way about Superman's arch nemesis, Lex Luthor, who in this movie is played by Kevin Spacey. He was the only actor who was ever considered for the role, and I think that he was really miscast in this film. But again, it's not so much about the actor as about the material. Spacey obviously wanted to bring a very sinister edge to Lex Luthor, and that's something that Gene Hackman had, although it was usually bubbling under the surface. That's at the forefront of Spacey's performance, but at the same time, because this is in continuity with the earlier films, you can tell that he's obligated, and the screenwriters have written him, to have this humor. It's the kind of stuff that Gene Hackman was able to pull off effortlessly, but which I think Spacey struggles with. Come on, let me hear you say it just once. Come on. You're insane. No! <laughs> no, well, the other thing. Come on, I know it's just dangling off the tip of your tongue. Superman will never- Wrong! 
Lex Luthor in this film, I think, is much more effective when he's grappling with the fact that he has godlike intelligence, but also happens to live in the time of a living god, which makes his efforts completely fruitless. When you think about characterization, this is actually closer to the direction that they took Lex Luthor in the Jesse Eisenberg portrayal of the character in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. When this is given center stage, I think the character of Luthor works a lot better. Gods are selfish beings who fly around in little red capes and don't share their power with mankind. The darkness of Lex Luthor is something that Kevin Spacey really seemed to revel in on and off screen, both intentionally... Kill Superman. Kill him. Kill Superman. Superman must die. And maybe unintentionally. Honestly, this could be... <laughs> What are you saying? If I wasn't in costume, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is how Kevin gets into character. Kate Bosworth, who was cast as Lois Lane, is also an actor that I don't think was helped by the movie's reverence to the Donner storyline because she is 23 years old in this film, but is asked to embody a character who has years of emotional experience with Superman. She has a long career as a reporter. She has a five-year-old son. And I don't think that all of this experience works with the ages of really either Ralph or Bosworth, but Bosworth in particular. I think if they'd been allowed to exist in their own universe, Brandon Ralph and Kate Bosworth could have actually worked really well as Superman and Lois Lane. But because they're hamstrung by having to stick to what Richard Donner and Richard Lester set up in the first two films, a lot of times they feel like kids in grown-up roles revisiting lines and famous moments from the previous films. Uh, you really shouldn't smoke, you know, Miss Lane. You know, you really shouldn't smoke, Miss Lane. Clark said that you're just a figment of somebody's imagination. Clark said the reason you left without saying goodbye is because it was too unbearable for you. Clark, uh, Clark? Who's that, your boyfriend? This is the guy I work with. I don't mean to harp on the disappointments of this movie, but they stand out in very stark contrast to what the movie actually gets right. And the first thing that I think this movie gets an A-plus for are the Superman action sequences. These sequences are nothing short of spectacular, and I think that they are the best designed and best executed Superman action sequences in any Superman film. At the beginning of the film, you have Superman rescuing Lois's crashing jetliner, and the modern technology allows you to take flight with Superman. You're zooming around, you're circling the plane, you can go up, you can go down, there's no limitation on Superman's movement. And what I also like is that you see the actual difficulty, the physical difficulty of being Superman, who has to deal with real-world physics. The plane a wing comes off, he has to go catch up with it, he's trying to catch it, and the, the, the impact ripples up the plane, which causes different things to happen. It crunches down on his arms as he's trying to lower it down. You see the effort that goes into being Superman, but you also see the might of his power. It is unlocked with the advancements in modern visual effects technology, and I think it's my favorite Superman sequence in any of the films. There's also the bank robbery sequence, which mirrors the night with Superman crime fighting scene in Superman 1978. I love the way that this starts with Superman floating above the earth, using his super hearing to sort of act as a police scanner to find the worst problem that's out there. This is a side of Superman that we've never seen, but it's also the truth. He, he has to pick and choose who he can help, and he's going to have to triage and prioritize what's going on. Then we see him coming down to this bank sequence. There's a guy with a chain gun. He's shooting at cops. He's about to kill some bank security guards. 
And I also love the decision to film Superman's entrance in slow motion so that the bullets are going very slow, but Superman is still moving very fast. It enhances his super speed and allows the movie to show it off without it looking very silly. Then we see Superman being completely bulletproof, which is great. But the real moment is when the robber takes out a gun and shoots Superman point blank, and we see the bullet flattening across Superman's eye. Again, this is a great Superman moment, and it's completely detached from any storytelling and mythology. It shows the potential of what could have been if this had been a wholly original Superman film. Later in the film, as an earthquake approaches Metropolis, we get a quick cut sequence of Superman saving a bunch of the civilians. He rescues a construction worker who's fallen out of a crane. He saves some pedestrians from falling glass with his heat vision. He stops a gas explosion with his super breath. It's all of Superman's powers in one sequence. And again, he's not doing this while fighting someone else or while doing something else. This is a pure sequence of Superman heroism and shows what a godlike superhero can do and the good that he can do just as one man. The movie really works when it is reveling in the possibilities of making a Superman movie in the modern era, but I think it's also a mess of contradictions because on one hand, there is an obsession with reminding you that you are not watching a new Superman universe, but you are watching a revived Donner universe, starting with the very first shots of the movie when we pan over the planet Krypton with Marlon Brando's voiceover. You will travel far. My little Kalel. That's followed by opening credits that use the Donner era blue flying fonts and the John Williams Superman theme. Lex Luthor returns to the Fortress of Solitude, which is explicitly mentioned. You act like you've been here before. And Luthor talks to the memory of Jorel himself, which is actual footage of Marlon Brando. Kalel. Tell me everything. We also have a repeat of Luther's land-grabbing plan from 1978, just heightened. You can print money, manufacture diamonds, and people are a dime a dozen, but they'll always need land. But the United States... Will be under water. And a lot of the times the movie just recycles or references the same jokes. Mr. Desbacher, when I was six years old, my father said to me... Get out. What did my father used to say to me? Get out. The movie is in lockstep with Richard Donner in both story and tone for so long that it becomes jarring when Superman all of a sudden acts completely out of character, like when he lurks outside Lois's house, eavesdropping on her and her fiancé Richard. Superman Returns is an attempt to both reinvent and recreate the mythos of Superman, and I think that those are two conflicting goals. The movie ends up being a mishmash of both, and at two and a half hours, it's really not able to sustain either the magic of the Richard Donner era or properly build its own world. Plus the emotional centerpiece of the film, which is that Superman has a son by Lois and he's reliving his own relationship with his father, it just doesn't work for me. Son becomes the father. I understand the intention, I just don't think it was a successful attempt to meld two worlds. It's very difficult to get to the end of the film and see Ralph recreating the very famous Christopher Reeve smile and fly away, very hopeful ending of the Donner era, when just 30 minutes earlier, Superman was shivved in the side by Lex Luthor with a shard of kryptonite after getting mercilessly beaten by his goons. Now fly. There are two other things that have always bothered me. 
One is the movie's laughably over-the-top amount of Jesus imagery. It's really on par with the Matrix revolutions and how they were setting up Neo as the savior. I mean, it's very obvious from the beginning. Donner even laid it on a little bit too thick. We get it. He's the only son of a more evolved being who sends his child to Earth to save humanity. It's not very subtle even in the storytelling. And when you add all of this over-the-top imagery, it almost becomes a parody of itself. The other thing, and I'm sorry to say this, is Ralph's Superman costume. I've always thought that Ralph's costume was very muted, very muted red, very muted blue, and the S, the shield on the chest, is way too small. And it's not just me saying that. When I was going through all the behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray, the movie's costume designer herself acknowledges this and basically just throws her hands up and says, eh, it is what it is. I think there will be people who are real superhero fans who will not like the size of the S, and they won't like the size of the trunks, and they won't like the cape. At some point, you have to deal with the body that you were given. But to temper this criticism just a little bit, I also think that Parker Posey is delightful in this film as Kitty. She really does make the best out of her screen time and secures a lot of the movie's best laughs. Wow, that's really something, Lex. Wait for it. Wow, that's really something, Lex. I'll continue breaking down Superman Returns in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Shudder. Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically claimed genre films that you won't find anywhere else, streaming uncut and commercial-free right to your favorite devices. And they now have a bona fide Golden Globe nominee. Shudder's La Llorona was recently nominated for the Best Foreign Language Feature Film at the Golden Globes. It also won Best Film at the 2019 Venice Film Festival and was an official selection to Sundance 2020. It blends together the terror of myth and reality into a devastating expose of the genocidal atrocities against the Mayan community in Guatemala. But La Llorona is not the only thing on Shudder, far from it. You also get titles like The Dark and the Wicked, After Midnight, which is available in the U.S. only, Clive Barker's Nightbreed, and Vampire's Kiss starring Nicolas Cage. For any Schmodown fan or Schmodown competitor, Nicolas Cage is on that wheel now, and you can find Vampire's Kiss right there on Shudder. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. And Shudder has the fastest-growing, hand-curated selection of horror and mystery around, which is why people are calling Shudder the Netflix for horror. And you will have unlimited access to stream these films ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Chromecast, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, Android devices. Pretty much anything you've got, you can find Shudder right there. I'm a newbie horror fan, so I appreciate the curation of Shudder, and I also appreciate, like I mentioned, that it's not just to watch horror movies. It's a great research tool for a guy like me that's involved in the Schmodown. This is a little bit of inside intelligence, but I don't mind telling you. I sat down the other night. I had my pen and pencil ready. I fired up Vampire's Kiss, which I couldn't find anywhere else. It was right there on Shudder for me. Not only did I get some great notes on a Nicolas Cage movie, I watched one of the craziest performances in any movie that I've ever seen. And that's what I love about so many of these things that you can find on Shudder. It's not just the mainstream horror films that you can find anywhere else. It is some of the most unique entertainment in this genre. And Shudder is able to curate so many different kinds of it that you never get the same experience twice. So what are you waiting for? Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. 
Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Color Out of Space, Host, The Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creepshow TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free for 30 days, free, go to Shudder.com and use the promo code MOVIES. That's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, and use the promo code MOVIES for 30 free days. If you're a horror fan, Shudder is the thing you've been waiting for. Go check them out now, and I want to thank Shudder for sponsoring the show. I hear everything. You wrote that the world doesn't need a savior. But every day I hear people crying for one. Overall, I really think that Superman Returns is less of a failure and more of a curiosity. It's an ode to an older series of films that is also at times as tonally dissimilar from those films as you can get. And I don't think that's a departure from expectation. I think that it's a contradiction. Listen, I understand the instinct to run back to the Richard Donner universe, especially after 15 years of hitting your head against a brick wall trying to figure out how you're going to bring Superman back to the big screen. But Superman Returns doesn't really add that much to the Superman legend, and by making them canon with the Christopher Reeve films, it also retroactively muddies the water with those films because it's full of plot points, retcons, and character developments that just don't mesh. I think what it does do is provide some of the best Superman action that we've ever gotten in a movie, maybe the best. But when I look at the talent in front of and behind the camera, I'm not so much enamored with what's there as much as I'm curious about what could have been there. When Superman Returns was released in summer 2006, critics were generally enthusiastic about the movie. It got mixed to positive reviews. Audiences, however, were a little more wishy-washy on the film. It got a B-plus cinema score, which sounds good, but generally indicates a somewhat mixed word of mouth. The movie opened to just over $50 million and ended up at just over $200 million domestically. It was the fifth biggest movie of summer 2006 behind ironically, Brett Ratner's X-Men The Last Stand, which ended up releasing just before Superman Returns. The movie also took in close to $200 million worldwide, and with a nearly $400 million global gross, that should have been enough to make it a modest hit. But Warner Brothers had invested a lot of money into this project. And when you add together not just the movie's production budget, but the massive marketing budget and the development costs that had gone into all of the failed iterations of Superman before this movie even started filming, some sources have pegged Warner's investment at $350 million or more for Superman Returns. And even a $400 million global gross wasn't enough to impress Warner Brothers executives. A sequel to Superman Returns with Brian Singer and Brandon Routh and everybody returning had been announced before the movie opened in summer of 2006, but the gears never really got going on that movie. Singer eventually departed and went on to work on other movies and Brandon Routh's contract expired in 2009. In a 2011 interview, Brian Singer said that, in retrospect, perhaps his over-the-top Christ analogies and slow pacing weren't the best mix for the summer movie crowd, and he said that if he had to do it all over again, he would have just rebooted the entire series and made it more of an action-heavy installment in the Superman franchise, which was exactly what Warner Brothers was already developing for its next iteration of Superman. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
But no matter what you think about Brandon Routh or the action on screen or the tone of the movie, and there are mixed opinions about this film, there is one undeniable positive that came out of Superman Returns. Marlon Brando's appearance in the film was negotiated with his estate after the actor passed away in 2004. We mentioned last week that Brando was cut out of Superman 2 after he sued the studio saying he wasn't paid enough for Superman the movie, and the producers said they didn't want to have to worry about any more legal troubles or pay him the hefty cut of the box office for Superman. Superman 2 that he would be owed, so they gave his lines to different characters and cut him out of the franchise completely. The agreement from Brando's estate to appear in Superman Returns also covered the use of the footage that was already shot for the Richard Donner cut, which allowed Jor-El to be reinserted into Richard Donner's vision of Superman 2. And many people involved in that project have said that if Brando's footage hadn't been able to be used, then the Richard Donner cut would never have seen the light of day because there would have been no point in doing it. Superman Returns set out to rewrite the history of the Man of Steel, and it did just that, just not in the way that anyone expected. As always, I like to take a look at the features that are available on the Blu-ray disc of the movie I'm talking about each week. And Superman Returns actually has a very impressive array of special features. There's a documentary that runs nearly three hours covering almost the entire production process from Brandon Routh's early wardrobe tests to the process and updated development of how to make Superman fly. We also get a look at the location shoot at the Kent farm where one crew member gets very candid when director Brian Singer is hoisted into the air to test a flying rig. I hope he kills himself. <laughs> All right, let's launch. <laughs> There's also a feature covering the massive set that was used to house the Daily Planet's newsroom and a look at the practical effects that were used to make Superman lift a car in an homage to the cover of Action Comics number one. You also see how the computer flying effects were done in the film, including a look at the guys with the most thankless job on the set of Superman Returns, these green screen bodysuit technicians who used rods to flap Superman's cape when he was shot against a green screen. We also get some pretty funny Superman Returns bloopers. How pissed do you think Superman is? A lot. He is a lot pissed. <laughs> and a Marlon Brando blooper that was apparently recovered from his original footage. Develop such conviction in yourself, Elal. Kalel. Ralph, whatever your name is. There's also a VFX breakdown on reviving Brando's performance for the film and computer animating his mouth to say words that they didn't have the footage for. And a series of deleted scenes, including lines from Cal Penn, who is credited in the opening titles but has no lines of dialogue in the finished movie. There's some kind of unnatural weather pattern keeping it hidden. And that wraps it up for Superman Returns. Next week, we're going to close out Superman Month by looking at Zack Snyder's 2013 Man of Steel, the movie that brought us our current Superman and kickstarted the DCEU, which is crescendoing this week with the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League, a movie that many think will finally do justice to Snyder's version of Superman. We'll break down all of that story next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. See you next time.